It is week 13 of the RSP cast. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman. How you doing, Mark? I was lying. I do have a prop. Look this at is that. A gl- this is a glitter piece of poop emoji that my daughter <laughs> just left down here. Because usually, uh, for those that are watching on News Channel 5, um, I have a prop for Matt. Like one week I had a baby Yoda in front of me. Another week I had the Grinch. Um, I usually try to surprise Matt when I log on. And he's So I don't shock him with this face right away. But I didn't have a prop. At least I thought I didn't have a prop. But I get this little piece of glitter poop emoji. So, that, that's, so that's fun. That's the prettiest poop I've ever seen, I think. You Seriously. Know? See, there I mean, you go. You know, when, when you when you're a believer in unicorns, this is how you picture the poop, I guess. I guess so. You know, yeah. there you go. Well, listen, um, something that hopefully doesn't get the poop emoji too often is the RSP. You exactly. can get the rookie scouting portfolio. Um, it is available for the 2021 version, of course. You can get it for um, $21.95 at mattwaldman.com. That also includes the pre-draft and post-draft rankings. It gives you a cheat sheet with it. And then you get the newsletter throughout the year. I'll have the November update out tonight for those subscribers. And then I also have the RSP Dynasty um, projections and rankings package, um, which is, I believe, $24.95. And that is available also. Um, I will be updating that tonight as well and probably sending that out either early tomorrow or the next day in early December. November's will be in early December, but I'll also have December's newsletters out. And and of course, the 2022 RSP will be available April 1st. um, And I'll be probably considering a package deal for both of these services um, that at a slight discount um, that news will probably be out in the, in the near future within the next couple of weeks. And I'll probably put up the RSP once again for pre-sale, which usually is a 10% discount available for that. um, Usually for a week to 10 days in December at some point. um, Cause I've had people ask in the past, can I pre-order it? And I'm like, sure. If you want to show your loyalty, even though you're not going to get it any sooner, you know, though I do like to send out that announcement to folks who, who pre-order early and and that's always been a good way to raise a little bit of cash for the senior bowl though uh, this year i think i'm staying at home at this point because we're uh we're uh you know i want to make sure i get this thing done and and you know maybe next year once things hopefully clear up on the on the health spectrum in terms of for everybody i'm i'm healthy we're fine just want to make sure we stay that way so you know, thanks again. You can find all that at mountwaldman.com. Let's let's get started and think of you know talk a little NFL and college here. Mark, who's the one player you think's going to emerge this month? Man, um, I've actually got two sort of in mind. One is an absolutely disgusting, filthy homer pick, and that's Kendrick Bourne. I think we're kind of seeing that right now. His relationship with Mac Jones. You saw the catch and run touchdown against the Titans. You know, Bill Belichick celebrating him with him locker room with the stiff arm and everything. You know, every as you get down the stretch, you start seeing, okay, who are quarterbacks targeted in the passing game? Who do they look to on a third and five situation to move the chains or to make a big play? And right now, for the New England Patriots and Mac Jones, it's Kendrick Bourne. So Bourne's one. And another thing you sort of look at is who do defenses want to take away and then who benefits as a result of that? T. Higgins in Cincinnati. You watch that Bengals-Pittsburgh game, right? 
A lot of moments where they're rotating safeties towards Jamar Chase. They're bracketing Chase. They're putting cone coverages over Jamar Chase, who's getting the one-on-ones as a result. It's T. Higgins. And Higgins had a number of big plays against Pittsburgh as a result. So I think if you continue to see defenses, look at Cincinnati and say, Burrow wants to throw to his boy. We're going to take Chase away. Higgins is going to see a lot of favorable matchups, a lot of one-on-ones as a result. And I think during you know the next couple of weeks down the stretch here, you might see him have similar big games. Yeah, I think that's a great choice. And that also goes bodes well for Joe Mixon um, in that run game yep. with the concentration of coverage and meaning they want to play back a little bit to guard against that play-action streak that basically has been deadly. So yeah, I love both of those choices. I'm going to go with one. And it just goes with rapport. And as a guy I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and that's Josh Reynolds um, in Detroit. Yeah. And, of course, Detroit's Detroit, and you worry about, you know, how that may work out. But, yeah. But with Josh Reynolds, you know, this was a guy at Texas A&M who was really a very fine perimeter receiver who could go up and win the ball in contested fashion, had a vertical game that was really worth keeping an eye on, but he got drafted around that time where basically the sunset of the big Des Bryant type of receiver who runs slants and fades and Alshon Jeffrey types where the NFL was like, you know, we got guys who can do that in Antonio Brown and Tyreek Hill and smaller guys who can do that, who are faster, who can run a, a better route tree all around. And next thing you know, guys like, you know, Equinemius St. Brown, who it seemed like, the whole, you know, a lot of the, the draft world had rated very highly, like Mac, Mac, I think had him second or third on his board, and the guy ended up going late to the Packers. And, you know, a guy like Reynolds went that route, you know. He went fourth round, went to Jeff Fisher's Titans. I mean, Jeff Fisher's Rams yep. at the end of his regime. So then Sean McVay takes over. McVay's like, you know, like most new coaches, kind of cleans house of and puts at starts adding their guys and putting their guys in priority over the past regime's guys. And to Josh Reynolds' credit, you know, he was a contributor on those rosters, even though he yep. wasn't a McVeigh guy. He was literally used in the slot, a lot of in-breaking routes. And what they did with him was basically outside his wheelhouse. And he still was a contributor and had some rapport with Goff. Goes to Tennessee, next thing you know, we, you know, Julio Jones is traded for. You thought he might, you know, Reynolds would be the big free agent addition. But, you know, the odd thing about that, too, was not long after in the, you know, or later in the preseason, you learned that he had an Achilles injury, which probably facilitated or at least sped up the process of negotiating for Jones. So they probably were like, we need another receiver. And why not make a big splash here with Jones? Because, you know, we may not, we don't even know what's going to go on with Reynolds with this Achilles injury. Reynolds, you know, wasn't really healthy until the, you know, second month of the season. And by that point, I think they thought everyone was coming back and they weren't, I, I don't know what happened in Tennessee, but they cut him. And, you know, golf's like, you know, you look at the Detroit Lions and it's like, I remember in May, someone reached out to me who's a recruiter, recruiting director and got a chance to, you know, one of his, the people he deals with is works at the, the Lions, and they asked him to take a look at some tape and study the receivers with them. And he asked me a hypothetical question about receiver play, and I answered it to him, and and the answer was like, well, 
you know, it was basically saying, how often do you see guys improve who have these types of issues? Right. And, and the guy he was talking about was Brashad Perriman. I didn't know that until I answered and said, well, Brashad Perriman's a good example of a guy who people think had some improvement, but really is the same guy. And he started laughing. He goes, that's exactly who I've been watching. And he's the only guy with, along with Khalif Raymond, who has any speed on this Lions team. And I'm not very impressed with their receivers. So when you look at that scenario, even back in like May, June, July, and you're like, not much is there. And so I think this is the chance for Josh Reynolds to get rid of the label that often happens to players who don't make their mark immediately. And the label for him is probably that he's a big slot receiver as yeah. opposed to him being this like stud perimeter guy. And I don't know if stud's the right word, but certainly a higher profile guy. And so watching him against Chicago, I mean, the double moves look good. The routes coming back to the perimeter look good. Some skill after the catch. And you know that Jared Goff is willing to throw some of the contested balls if you watched him earlier with Quintez Cephas. So I think as they get rolling, we're going to see Josh Reynolds probably take over the primary role down the stretch on this team. And I wouldn't be surprised if he puts up numbers where you're like, huh, maybe the Lions will resign him and they'll be excited about him. I think this is going to be his chance to really kind of remake his career. We'll see. All right. So are there any NFL teams you believe are sneaking up on the general public in terms of their perception and how you see them playing? I don't really think anybody's like sneaking up right now. I mean, you know, this league is so covered to death at this point where like every week there's like a new hot team. Every week there's like a team that's kind of up and coming. Every week there's, you know, a new division leader or something like that. And so I don't think teams are necessarily sneaking up on people. Like people might, might say like, oh, New England, right? Like New England's coming out of nowhere. Like here they are, Belichick's back and all that stuff. I, I think this has been kind of building over the past couple of weeks. Um, so I, I don't think that's necessarily a situation where teams sneaking up, you know, maybe Cincinnati, but Cincinnati had some impressive wins earlier in the year. So I don't think it's like that much of a surprise. People might say, Hey, look, Washington, they're in the mix yeah. right now. And I, I look at Monday's win against Seattle. And I think that was more a referendum on whether the Seahawks are yeah. and the Pete Carroll, John Schneider, Russell Wilson triumvirate is right now. I, that does seem to be going the way of the Roman triumvirate of old. So <laughs> I, I think that's kind of coming to a close. I mean, maybe San Francisco. Like, maybe San Francisco was that team. But, like, look, they're figuring out some stuff on the ground. They found a way to make it work with Garoppolo. Like, yeah, it doesn't look like they'll catch Arizona, but they could be that team you don't want to play in the playoffs. And so if there's a team that I think fits that sneaking up on everybody, Bill, it might be San Francisco. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And we'll see what happens with Debo Samuel with that groin injury because he was really right. a big part of what they could do with that outside running game, though. You know, Elijah Elijah Mitchell, if you get him enough carries, he seems to be he seems to do the trick for you. Right. And so I you know, that's gonna be I think you make good points about them, but Samuel being healthy, I think is going to be a big part of that. Um, I, I like the Washington point in terms of, you know, the way Heineke's played hasn't been bad. You know, certainly you've got a good ground game. Um, yep. DeAndre Carter seems to be stepping up and having some nice rapport with Heineke to add to Lauren McLaurin, which is good. And they're getting Logan Thomas back. So with that and, you know, that with Thomas back, that's going to be, you know, that's not a bad 
you know, battery of receivers to have or offensive skill players to go along with what you, you know, what you got going on. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about what I see from them. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't want to say Miami cause I don't think they're that, I don't think they're that good, but right. I think Tua tongue of Iloa is kind of starting to get it together a little bit more. And, and I'm, I'm interested to see how they play, play down the stretch with that. Green Bay seems like I didn't think Green Bay had that good of a record. I went back and looked at their record. I mean, I've watched a lot of their games this year and studied them, but to see their record, I was kind of surprised. And so they kind of snuck up on me, but maybe that's just because I don't pay attention to the to the headline stuff yeah. too often. So yeah, it's an interesting combo about these guys. So tell me something. We're in the, you know. We're in the holiday spirit. Mark's trying not to laugh because he already can guess what I'm going to be talking about. And everyone here probably can too. But say something positive about a player you've been critical of this year. Yeah, I mean, a a player that I've been critical at times, um, Derek Carr. Um, I I thought there were some moments where he was a bit underwhelming earlier this season. But, you know, I went back and rewatched his game against Dallas. Some of the pocket movement stuff he showed was a huge step forward from him. Um, and you know, there have been bits and pieces of it throughout the year. Um, but he had three throws. I, I highlighted them three throws to Deshaun Jackson, where you know, he's moving around, he's fluid in the pocket, he's fluid on his feet. You know, that's a team that that has been obviously through a lot, mostly almost all of it off the field this year. But they're a team that somehow is now still alive in the mix. And I think Carr deserves a lot of credit for that. I think his pocket movement on Thursday is an example of what he's done between the lines. There's probably a lot more that he's done off the field in that locker room to keep them sort of where they are, to keep them in the mix. And certainly the interim staff has done a good job of that probably as well. But yeah, Derek Carr, his game against Dallas, I thought was very impressive from a footwork, from a fluidity, from a pocket movement standpoint. And it was fun to sort of rewatch that over the weekend. Yeah, I would have... I really wanted to put the Raiders in that sneaking up category, yeah. but their defense is just the problem for me. Yeah. If the defense were better, because you look, I mean, Deshaun Jackson, I mean, listen, as long as he stays healthy, which is the big if at 36 yeah. years old or however old he is, he's he's still a fantastic wide receiver when he's on the field, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, Baker Mayfield, I'll say this. Uh, he's tough. He's yeah. a tough. He's a tough guy. I mean, he's playing through injuries that probably would take other guys out of the game. He probably should not be on the field right now. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But, but the fact that he's strapping it, you know, strapping it up and and ready to go, and you can see he's hurt pretty much every game, yeah. and and still stays in that stays in most of the games and trying to play through it. And he's got that. He's got that kind of. Str- you know, street fighter mentality. He's always had it. You know, some people would say it's because he watches too much media and he's insecure and kind of bring that up. But I mean, wasn't Michael Jordan insecure when he got up at, you know, yeah. in his hall of fame and, you know, um, speech and pretty much dissed everybody um, explaining, you know, but he was showing his mentality and that's what kind of happens. I think you need to have a little bit of that in your game. Maybe Baker Mayfield has too much of it. I don't know. I don't really care about that. I think he's got that. I like the spirit in which he plays with. I like the fact that he wants to tell everybody who criticizes him to go stick it. And he's, and you know, I don't know if he has his entire locker room, 
but I'm sure that people admire him on that. I think it makes it difficult for that team because the team admires the fact that he works hard, he's trying hard, he doesn't want to let people down, and yeah. he's willing to fight. And that's a, you know, that's a lot, and that's a, you know, that says a lot about him. So I may be critical about his game, but I'm not critical about his will. And, yeah. you know, I admire that. If I could, you know, if his game were better, I would be a huge fan of Baker Mayfield. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So we have a question from Mr. MF, who is a new follower, at least here, and asked this question. Um, and I thought this is perfect for Mark and I to answer because I'm I'm a closet Ravens fan. He's obviously not a closeted um, Patriots fan. So what does Bill Belichick do differently to prepare his teams than other coaches? I always hear it's attention to detail, but what exactly is he doing? Is it more practice time on certain things? Is it a different way of teaching at practice? Does he make them rep things till it's perfect? I'm a Ravens fan, and I'm trying to figure out what the different approaches are because Ravens, at least from my perspective, always play hard but seem to be out-schemed often. We can't figure out what the better coaches are doing different from us that have their teams look more prepared. And I want to kind of bring up something with this because certainly Mr. MF, it sounds like he's been a Ravens fan for a while and follows them. You know, and I certainly watch them almost weekly. They and I think he fits it well that they always play hard. But the the AFC North is kind of a division where the Ravens, Steelers, Browns, even the Bengals now, they play hard. They've always yeah. been about being physical. They're like the they're kind of like the North in that Game of Thrones show. It's like yeah. they are they play hard. It's a lot of play with a lot of emotion. It's a lot of physicality. They their way of playing is, you know, execute the plays that we give you. We're not going to get too fancy with what we do, um, but we're going to play with guts. We're going to out execute you. We're going to, you know, we're going to get players who can, you know, basically ride the wave of emotion as well as intimidate you and, you know, out athlete you in addition to do the things that we give them perfectly well. The problem with that is that, you know, I know he's thinking more than just this year. I mean, you could make the excuse this year and say the Ravens are, you know, they've had they had 18 people on IRR before the season yeah. even began. So, the, you know, that's difficult in itself. And so when you say they get out schemed, a lot of it is can be dumb mistakes that happen with communication because of the fact that their main guys aren't all in there and some of their glue pieces are are missing. But I think some of it also is, is, you know, if you look at the offense, you can say, listen, Lamar Jackson does have a more compressed um, range of options of how, where he throws the ball and the types of routes that they run. It doesn't mean that he's playing baby football by, right. you know, far from that. But it's not, it's a different style of football where from a throwing perspective, He's not going to be looking at as many options of where he'll throw and types of throws that he'll make as, say, Tom Brady at the height of his career would, um, or Aaron Rodgers does right now, you know, in certain certain things. But at the same time, neither of them are going to run option. Neither right. of them are going to be running plays where the defense knows it's coming and still can't stop it because Lamar Jackson's the quickest, fastest running back, maybe, or 
quarterback ever, you know, in terms of what he can do with that. And the fact that they know they can lean on him to create. So I think that, you know, John Harbaugh, I think, understands. John John Harbaugh basically bought into this with Lamar Jackson, at least on offense. You know, on defense, I you know, that's a different question. And I think that, you know, it's probably more about missing certain players and not having any real game-changing players in the middle of the field. And when you don't have top game-changing players in the middle of the field and your safeties don't communicate well, and Elliott is one of those guys who's been who's kind of directed people in the wrong way, who's missed opportunities. Their linebackers are young and very athletic, but Patrick Queen was a guy that they wanted in the middle and he wasn't up to snuff there and they had to move him yeah. outside. So I think for the Ravens, Mr. MF, I would say the the way that they the way that they play and they have often given Bill Belichick fits in terms of where the way they play. Um is the opposite of what Belichick maybe does with his team. I think the Ravens invest more in in athletes who are good at being able to do a number of things well, but they're not asking them to do a wide range of things. And few teams do do that. So, you know, I'll let Mark talk about whatever he wants to talk about with the Ravens and add to that, and then also talk about Belichick, and then I'll add to that with him. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of spit it to Belichick here. Um, I, I think there are sort of two things, one more of a roster construction thing, one more of a sort of practice and a preparation thing. On the roster construction side, you kind of touched on it at the end. Patriots very much that organization that asks, you know, what can he do in terms of player acquisition, you know, and if it's something that will help them in some way, shape, or form, then they'll acquire that player. I mean – whether it's Juwan Bentley, their linebacker, who can stop the run. Okay, we that will help us. We will draft that player. Or it's, you know, finding a guy like Nelson Aguilar that he can do some stuff with the deep passing game. That's what he's better perhaps suited at. We can work with that. You know, they, they, they don't look at and focus on what players cannot do or they don't look at players and say, well, here's how we can coach him up. Because and I, I think you sort of tweeted about this recently, the idea of, coaching players up is like it's such a, a fallacy i think yeah like there are things you can refine and technical things you can refine but the idea that look we're going to take this player we're going to make him into what we think he can be you're setting yourself up for failure the, the better approach is here's where he is right now here's how that will help us if we get him to someplace better great but what he is right now fits with what we want him to be and need him to be and that will work. And, and so I think that's the sort of roster construction side. The practice and preparation approach, you know, it's hard to say that like Belichick does this more than others. Belichick does this and others don't or anything like that. Because it's not like I'm in all 32 practice facilities and in all these practice bubbles and I get a chance to literally say, he's doing this, the other 31 aren't. But from study of the Patriots over the years, the emphasis on situational awareness. And it is a it is a constant point of emphasis on the practice field, in the meeting rooms, in the classroom. They might be doing a situational drill covering third downs, and Belichick will pull players aside and say, "Okay, we're doing third downs right now, but what if it's fourth and two in the th- in the fourth quarter? How does your, how does your play call change? You know, how does your thought process change? Like, what do we do here? Okay, well, what do we do here? And he will do that with rookies. He will do it with veterans. He will do it with stars." You know, there are all the stories about how Belichick would quiz Tom Brady in front of teams about situational stuff and calls and things like that. 
because it doesn't matter if you're Tom Brady or the rookie undrafted free agent from Alabama State. Like you have to know these things. And when you see situational mistakes from other teams, those are the kinds of things that Bill Belichick tries to fix before the games start. So you know if you've got a situation where it's third and goal from the one, eight seconds before halftime, and you have a timeout left, you can throw it away. You can take a sack even. Like you don't need to make something happen. You have a timeout to use. Like you won't see in most instances Patriots quarterbacks making that kind of mistake because of the emphasis on situational awareness that begins from the first day of rookie minicamp until the last day you leave that organization. Like it is a constant thing he's harping on. And they might practice something, you know, 15 times during training camp that they might do once in the course of a season, like a, an intentional safety or a free kick, you know, a fair catch after a free kick or something like that. They will have that drilled into your minds because football is hard. Football is a very difficult game. From snap to whistle, it is a very difficult game. But you can put yourself in a position to be successful from snap to whistle if your mind is set with every single potential scenario before that play begins. Yeah, and I think you touch on some things that I would love to comment on that I want to see what you think of this. I mean, one is I think the type of players that you mentioned Belichick gets, he uses – he's the type of guy that when they acquire a player, they use them. So yeah. they have – they. he's the type of person that if you – you know, if he had a garage that had like lots of hardware and tools and things like that, he would – everything would be labeled. Everything would have a drawer. Everything would be hung up perfectly. And he would know where everything is. And he would use everything that's in that shop down to like, and there's some of those tools like Brandon Bolden are like very old and look like that they've been worn down to a nub, but they still work great. They may even work better than they have ever before um, at that point. Whereas with most coaches, they tend to have a lot of tools, but they don't know how to use half of them. Yep. And they lean on a certain number. And as a result, they may make like they may make like a really good table. They might make a really good chest, but you ask them to make, you know, cabinets or to do something uh, do some do a different type of project and they don't know where to begin. You know, they might have a planer in there or, you know, a certain type of drill and they don't know how to use it yet. Yeah. And and they figure and they haven't figured that out. And I think that's the difference. The the problem is is that it's very difficult for your it that's why Bill Belichick is so good of a coach and so different from everyone else is that he's able to do that. He's able to figure that out and he gets the most from players who would be special teamers at best on other teams um, and, or were cast-offs. And he finds a way to make them you know, very good at what it is that they do. And he can input a lot of people in different situations that way. Whereas I think with Harbaugh, you know, you could say, well, he's not as good of a coach as Belichick because Belichick's won you know, seven Super Bowls. And you probably say that's a fair assessment. But you could say that Harbaugh is one of the best coaches in the league in terms of his ability to delegate, to be able to, um, you know, be a player's coach in the sense that he knows that his players aren't repped on situational football to the level that Bill Belichick is. And maybe he doesn't use everybody to the level that Belichick can, but 
he's the type of player that he he gives his players confidence in the ability to do what they do well. And when they have a failure, he doesn't punish them for that in a way where he loses the player or the team. He, yep. you know, fourth down, we're going to, you know, fourth down, what do you want to do, Lamar? Hell yeah, I want to go for it. You right. Know? Okay, that's all I needed to hear. You know, you, Lamar, you, you know, you basically stunk up the th first three quarters of this game. You've thrown four interceptions. You know, I'm still going to lean on you to do what you can do. You yeah. know, the, the there are coaches who are bad coaches because when players screw up, they get too conservative. And they right. don't let the player play through the badness. They don't let them do what they need to do. They don't let that player, they don't allow their team to figure out ways to use these players in the best way that they can be used. The fact that the fact that Jim Harb or John Harbaugh said, "Yeah, why do I want to get a robo quarterback? There's only one Tom. It's only two. You know, there's only a Tom Brady and a Peyton Manning. You know, I can mention 15 quarterbacks who are in that robo quarterback mode who've never been to Super Bowl or never won one yeah. or never gone to a Pro Bowl or much less even, you know, started continue to be a starter after three years. Why not get a guy who can be, you know, almost equal." almost in the same tier, but for different ways and different reasons, yeah. you know? And I think that's what, you know, it's a different management thing. Coaches are different. Some coaches are experts in situational football. Other coaches are experts at being able to manage and delegate what their, what their staff does. Um, others have, you know, everyone has different management strengths. And I think that that's kind of what I would highlight with that is it's a, you know, and the and the rep thing, I think you're totally right about, you know, it's like, you, you know, you teach, it's a rehearsal. Practice is rehearsal of, yep. of the things that you study. And then they give you warm-ups of drills that if they hope that you take home and really work on on your own, you know, at a high level for a, every day for a length of time. And, and I bring this up a lot, but it's like music, you know, you if you have a kid who plays or you played before, if you see a band practice or a rehearsal for a play, you, you know, they're not having you practice, you know, the level of emotion that you are trying to portray or the techniques that you would learn to get better at certain scenes, you know, or techniques that you would learn to play with better intonation or, you know, better articulation on your instrument. They may, sh they may give you five minutes to everybody do that together as a group or a unit, and then it's time to on to rehearse the music that you're going to play or the or the play you're going to perform. Um, they lean on you to do that every day, you know, as you go. And it's like watching grass grow. Even if that, even if the the improvement seems dramatic for people over the course of six months, I can tell you. I mean, you know, as someone who's learning two instruments right now, it's like it, it feels like watching grass grow to be, you know. Even if I'm only playing, practicing something for 10 to 15 minutes every day, it's the same thing. And it just feels like some, there's some days I'm just like, oh man, this is like, right. this is boring and drudgery, but it, but it works. And it's the same, it's the same thing with all of this. So hopefully we answered your question and, and then some, um, you know, as best as we could with that. So, um, I want to know if whether I'm going to give you a player and a, and and an opponent from last week 
and I labeled it that good, that bad. Is the player okay. that good, or is the, the opponent they face that bad? Is Cordero Patterson that good, or Jacksonville's defense that bad? Patterson's good, but this is a bad Jacksonville defense. I think this is more the Jacksonville defense. That that team, you know, not to veer to the offense. The I don't understand what they're doing schematically on offense. Um, Urban Meyer talked about how receivers are running the wrong. They had a third down play where they had a trips to the left. Every receiver on that side ran a curl in a condensed alignment. So you basically had <laughs> oh, it, it looked like kids youth soccer. I mean, it was just yeah. um, and, and some stuff. Some of the stuff that. I was just saying about the offense can be attributed to the defense too. Like it, it's, it's a bad defense. As much as I love Patterson, I, I think he's a fantastic weapon. We've talked about him on this show. I think the Jacksonville defense is just that bad. Yeah, I would agree. And I'll say this as much as I like Laquan Treadwell coming out of um, Ole Miss. Yeah. Laquan Treadwell is leading your receivers, um, your receiving core and your receiving core is pretty healthy. Um, yeah. That's a problem. That tells you a little something right there. Or it tells you Laquan Treadwell is about to take off, and I don't believe that yet. Um, I'm with you in this sense. Um, Cordero Patterson still gimpy from a high ankle sprain. You could see that every time he w- had to change direction, it was tough on him. Like, it, unless he could dip around, yep. he didn't make any hard, really hard cuts. It was mostly running downhill, and he didn't have to do anything but run straight downhill. And Atlanta's offensive line is not the greatest run-blocking offensive line because as much as you know, fantasy people give Mike Davis grief, um, Mike Davis is not a bad running back. It's just that Mike Davis is the type of running back that – you want running zone plays where he presses the line and cuts back. But when you can't press the line of scrimmage because the line of scrimmage is reset in your lap, there's not much you're going to be able to get out of Davis. Whereas when you run gap plays and you just get a guy who can hit straight downhill, well, but Cordero Patterson's doing that since he was with the Minnesota Vikings. And the fact that Patterson had as good of a day he did because the offensive line could push um, you know, into that secondary almost and and give him straight line runs of 8 to 10 12 20 yards that tells you all you need to know about Jacksonville's defense i mean yeah. miles jack looked like he was getting eaten alive pretty much play after play and the the falcons resetting the line of scrimmage isn't something i've seen much of as no. consistently as this game is deshaun jackson that good or is cornerback anthony brown that bad Brown had a very bad game, obviously four pass interference penalties. I think that that's never a good sign, but Deshaun Jackson's very good. He's a very good receiver still. Now the question is, will he stay healthy? Like, will, will he remain healthy? Because I think when healthy, he's still a dangerous threat. And the relationship you're already seeing him and Derek Carr, like that was kind of impressive to see. Like he had, he has a very good release game off the line of scrimmage. He's still got the, the lawn speed on some of those deeper routes where he can accelerate away from the nearest defender, accelerate, accelerate, excuse me, away from coverage. So Brown had a bad game, but I think Jackson's very good. Yeah, I think it's more, you know, a key point for me was not you brought up the route running. Certainly the way he stems routes is fantastic in the vertical game. He really can play, get into your mind with that. But I love how savvy he is. I think he was better than Henry Ruggs was. Like, I honestly think that the only reason, the only difference between he and Henry Ruggs is that Henry Ruggs was younger and Henry Ruggs couldn't run as, as routes as well as Deshaun Jackson. And otherwise, if 
if the vet minimum, if you weren't going well, he's on the verge of a you know career retirement. Um, Deshaun Jackson would be in a lot more demand because one of the right. key plays I saw is that Anthony Brown made the veteran move of trying to underhook Deshaun Jackson's arm on a on a route that was resulted in a defensive pass interference. And usually you get away with that. Usually yeah. you get away with it, but Deshaun Jackson's still so fast that he could pull away from it enough. <laughs> For the official to actually see it, yep. that it became so obvious. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Jackson knows how to, and Ruggs could do that, but it's a matter of understanding where, what point you're at in that, you know, one-on-one positioning with the ball going down that you can have the presence of mind to go, how do I emphasize that I'm getting fouled when maybe they wouldn't call it? And, and Jackson's great at that. I mean, when you can get three, pass interference penalties on a player in addition to three catches for a hundred and what 107 yards and a score. Yep. Yeah. He, I think he's that good. Um, is Tua Tonga-Vailoa that good or was Carolina's defense that bad? I I don't want to say that two is good because I think Carolina has a pretty good defense conceptually and you know, they're missing some guys, but two has looked better in recent weeks. Like, you know, I, I think the idea that, Miami has a decision to make or that they're going to move on from Tua. You know, I think we can walk that back a little bit because he's been better and he's been decisive. He's thrown with leverage and placement, which has been impressive. And so on this one, I'll say for, for the choices and the way it's, it's sort of constructed, Tua's that good. Yeah, I think he's that good. And if, uh, you know, a certain team in the Northeast would like to trade their quarterback or like – give up on their quarterback and we have a trading places, you know, scenario with Tua in Cleveland and, and Baker in Miami. Um, I would, I would dig that as a Browns fan, though. I know most Browns fans would be up in arms still. Um, But Tung Vailoa, I mean, to me, he has like the highest completion percentage in the league right now. And you look at the receivers he has, these aren't like, you know, other than Jalen, you know, you've got Jalen Waddle, Durham Smythe, you know, Jacecki, certainly those are good reasons to have a high completion percentage. But Devontae Parker has never been a high completion percentage type of receiver, um, if you ask me. I mean, he's, you know, he's a limited player who does a lot of high-end work in what, you know, the limited things he can do. And even Jacecki is a guy that you can't, you don't use like Travis Kelsey. He has a limited number of things you ask him to do. So really the only unlimited guy they have is Jalen Waddle, and the shackles are on him because they don't have a T. Higgins on one side, right. the other side of the field, or a Tyler Boyd in the middle for him to be unlocked in the way that he will be down the line. So I think to a tongue, you know, people give Tonga Vailoa a lot of grief, but I look at the quality of players he's got around him, and it's a, you know, it's basically New England with, with without the coaching, the level of coaching and expertise to get the most out of them and knowing what type it's like, it's like Miami. If we use the, the, the garage, you know, workshop as an example, again, you know, new England is the one that has all the right tools, knows what brand tools to get, knows why they want to use those tools the way they use them and then can make anything you want out of that shop. Whereas with Miami, it's like Brian Flores look, you know, has a picture of the tools, but didn't think about, doesn't really understand which brand to get, what what model number to get, 
why that is and how all of these things work together just yet. And so I think that the difference is that he had, you know, he, he, and he, he went discount, you know, maybe, or maybe they went high end in certain areas and discount in others. And sometimes the discounts outperforming the high end and they don't really understand, you know, what their, their overall, you know, strategy should be with maintaining that kind of a, a shop. And, yep. and he's still learning. And as a result of that, the the guy that they have in charge of doing the carpentry work, um, they're, you know, a lot of people are like, well, the carpenter's bad. And it's kind of like, no, I think it's it's a combination of things, you know. So anyway, how about Denver's defense? Was it that good or was just Justin Herbert that bad? Denver's defense is very physical on the catch point. Denver's defensive players in the secondary can be very disruptive on time in routes. We saw that a couple weeks ago against Dallas. I think we saw a lot of that against Justin Herbert and the Los Angeles Chargers. So I think in this one, it's hat tip to the Denver defense, but there's a conceptual problem with this offense right now in Los Angeles. Um, interestingly enough, look, a lot of people have said that they're really sort of Rated in Justin Herbert. And I think there is something to that, like the route concepts, the philosophy. It's very much rooted in a Sean Payton West Coast design, which that's Lombardi's background. So I understand it. You know, but this is Justin Herbert. He's a different quarterback. He's not Drew Brees. He can push the ball downfield. You know, interestingly enough, his average depth of target, intended air yards, all that stuff is kind of similar to what it was last year. But it's more of a philosophical thing, I think, with this Chargers offense. Now, there were moments against Denver where you could see Joe Lombardi trying to marry the two. They did some stuff where you had like front side verts, front side levels, but then backside, weak side option, halfback option with Austin Eckler, which is a very much a Peyton staple. Alvin Kamara running that weak side halfback option. So it does seem like there's an, a consciousness from Lombardi that. I've got to marry both worlds here, and he's trying to work through that. But whatever they went more West Coast time and rhythm against this Denver secondary, those guys in the secondary were very physical. They, they will break on those routes. They will be disruptive with the catch point. And I think that was a big part of what happened Sunday. Yeah, I think so. And another part that's not just Sunday but happened in previous weeks is there's there's a point about execution. And execution has to be there. And Denver took advantage of – receivers who just didn't catch the football, you know, tip the ball, who yeah. aren't using their hands correctly. And this is a common problem that I highlight a lot on Sundays is you see receivers, even good or high-producing receivers, where they don't use their hands correctly on certain routes. And I think it's ironic that the most difficult route, it seems like, for receivers to use the right or most difficult um, placement of the football where receivers have the, the most trouble is literally on the numbers. Like yeah. they don't seem to know what to do when the, the, the ball is on the numbers. And there's a lot of plays that can be made when they use that overhand technique and extend their arms out to the ball and win it. But so many receivers do what Terry McLaurin does. Terry McLaurin is the exception to the rule. You, if you, if you ever show someone, if a, if a good wide receiver, I would say this, if there was a, a top wide receiver coach, like someone that is really worthy of respect, who understands, you know, the nature of using their hands. If someone said that, you know, Terry McLaurin is the teaching template, I bet you 
nine times out of ten, he's thinking about smacking you for saying that. Because Terry McLaurin is the exact opposite of great technique, but gets it done at the highest level. He's the exception to the rule. But so many players like Mike Williams, Austin Eckler, I've seen them drop footballs this year, plenty of them, for using poor technique on the numbers um, or using technique where they clap on the ball. and They've got to get better at how they meet their hands to the football because there's a lot of throws that could have won them games that they've lost because of because of the onus being on them. So, yeah. you, you know, I, I'm with you on scheme, but there's a part of me that just is like, at some point, you know, we look at scheme, 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 and the other part is like, there's some things you guys could practice and get way better at. You know, it's low-hanging fruit. So I'm, I'm kind of going that... Um, it was neither Denver's defense nor Justin Herbert. That, or I'm, I agree with you with your point, but I would add that you could see there's an element that it was Justin Herbert's supporting cast that was not that good. Yeah. So, is you know, I I saw some interviews you know on Monday, and the question was posed, you know, have you thought about starting Case Keenum over Baker Mayfield, and Kevin Stefanski gave the answer that you would expect if you're supporting your starting quarterback who's trying hard to stay on the field. And that was, you know, acting like it was a ridiculous statement and said, why would I do that? And my thought is, well, your quarterbacks, you know, your quarterback had one receiver's dad basically make a hit clip of what's going on here, which may have you looked at and say, well, that's on Odell and his dad and that's, you know, dysfunctional and bad. And then Kareem Hunt's dad is like, yeah. he's scared to throw. He's scared to throw the ball in certain places because he's banged up and he knows he can't do it. And defenses knows he can't do it. So defenses are now loading the box. And now that they're loading the box and the Browns, who have the best running th- game maybe in the NFL, can't run the football. And, um, you know, well, that's the basis for why you're using Baker Mayfield. And if Baker Mayfield can't make you pay you know, with accurate throws in the in the intermediate and vertical ranges, then why wouldn't you start Case Keenum, who proved he could do that in Minnesota and down the stretch with a team that I would argue maybe had definitely had better receivers, yeah, but probably not better tight ends. Definitely not a better run game. Right, um, it was just as good, or maybe not quite as good. Um, so. Do you, do you agree with Kevin Stefanski and the way he portrayed it? Or do you think you just agree with Kevin Stefanski for, you know, having Baker's back? Yeah, I mean, I more agree with Stefanski for having Baker's back than anything else. I, I think this is a situation where Baker's clearly banged up. There's no question about that. And it is impacted to some level their performance. Teams know what they have to take away. Defenses, like you said, can just stack the box, put seven, eight, nine, ten guys in the box. Like bagged up Baker right now is not going to, unless something crazy happens down the stretch here, he's not going to throw them to a playoff title, playoff run. Like I think that there is a window here where you at least consider the idea that, you know, Case Keenum, when when healthy, obviously Baker Mayfield is the much better option at quarterback. I don't think there's any debate about that, but he's not healthy right now. It's impacting this offense. So I think you at least have to consider it. Now, maybe you look at it and you say, well, even 65% of Baker is better than 100% of Case Keenum. 
past couple of weeks might lead you to a different conclusion there. So I think you have to at least entertain the idea. Yeah, I don't think I don't think 65% of Baker Mayfield is remotely as good as 100% of Case Keenum. And I'm not a huge Case Keenum fan, but I think that, you know, in terms of seeing him as a starter. But, right. I mean, listen, at least he'll make the attempt to try and make you pay. And I think he'll do it in good enough fashion that they can get it to happen. Um, and anyway, you're at a point now that what they've lost, you know, they're, they're six and six now at this point. So they're six and six. They lose, they play the Ravens again, who are going to do the same thing to them and say, listen, we're not, we're putting our foot on your neck. What are you going to do about it? You know, and Baker Mayfield's going to be the same Baker Mayfield unless, you know, there's some miracle healing going on that, that, you know, is very unlikely. So as a result of that, let them rest up, give them, give them a few weeks. And if you lose, if you get, you don't get into the playoffs because of the fact that Baker Mayfield was hurt. Oh, well, I understand. Oh, well, if you believe in him as a, you know, as a player, you know, let him don't get him into bad habits. He's hurt. He's going to be making, he's going to be in, he's, this is helping him develop bad habits while he's playing hurt as well. I know some people say, well, he's in his fourth year and he's passed all of that. Nah, he's not passed all of that. No, you don't you know, pass that. You don't. So get him off the field where he's not going to get into bad habits due to injury so that when he's healthy, he's making inexplicable decisions. Put Keenum in there. Might yeah. give your team a spark. He certainly was good enough. You know, when he started the, you know, on the Thursday night game a few weeks ago, give give them that opportunity and know that you're saving Baker for an opportunity if he gets healthy enough to go. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, I, I think that I'd, I, I appreciate Kevin Stefanski wanting to support his guy. Right. And, and, I, and I appreciate that. But there's a part of me that's just like, you look at this team and, at some point, the team's just going to be exasperated with Mayfield, and yeah. it's an uncomfortable situation because they they obviously like him. They well, I think a lot of the team obviously likes him. I think there's yeah. a lot more to that Odell situation than we know. I and, mean, especially with Kareem out. Hunt's dad now, like yes, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. What you know, can't get fooled again. Exactly. So I mean, there's there's something there, and I don't think Baker is like the Pied Piper that people want to make him out to be, but I don't want, but I think it's more complicated that he's not the villain. You know, I don't want to villainize Baker Mayfield. I don't like his game. I don't think he's should be the Browns quarterback. We know that, but I don't want to villainize the guy either just to try and prove a point. I think it's yeah. more about that. It's more complicated that it's not just because Odell's going to fit in fine in LA. I think, I don't think that's going to be um, as major of an issue. If it is, then, you know, fine. Than, than points made. But the fact that Kareem Hunt's dad is out there, like you said, it's a great, it's, it's, you start to wonder. So yeah. how about college player note? Anybody you've watched or someone you can't wait to see that that's been on the, on the agenda here? I'm not finalized with my cornerback study yet, but Ahmad Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati. I absolutely love him. I yeah. absolutely love him. Um, Lawn, fluid moves extremely well can play with play and press technique can play and press alignment 
but very schematically diverse. Um, I, I like I, I said I told you before the show I got done doing my first mock draft and mock drafts at this point in time are absolutely worthless, kids. I mean you, the draft order isn't even set as it stands right now. Though we would have in the top ten of this draft the Jets picking at four and five, and then the Giants picking at six and seven, and then the Eagles picking at eight and nine. We'd have three teams with back to back picks if the draft were to happen right now. But there's a lot of stuff that will happen between now and the, the actual draft. But I gave the Jets Gardner with one of those two picks, and a lot of people are already saying, that's ridiculous, he's not a top-five corner. Maybe. But I look at him, I look at Robert Sala, I look at the defense that I know he wants to build. I, I see a long, lengthy corner with zone coverage ability, but some press coverage chops, and I think – no, Richard Sherman wasn't the Legion of Boom version of Richard Sherman when Robert Sala was coaching him in San Francisco, but that's the kind of player that I sort of see, the potential I sort of see in him. And so I absolutely love this kid. I'm excited to watch more of him. I mean, I've started every single time he was targeted this year, so I've got a good feel of what he is. I'm very excited about his potential. Nice. Very nice. Have I talked about um have I talked about Aeneas Smith? Texas no. No. Okay, well, this guy reminds me of Derek Mason a little bit. Oh, boy. Um, there's a, you know, Derek Mason wasn't a finished product out of Michigan State. Certainly, you know, started off with the Titans as a return man. And I think it was four or five years into his career before he really started playing receiver as a as a high-end, as a starter. And then he had a 15-year career, you know. And in year 14, I believe he had one of his best years ever with the Ravens. You know, could be a deep threat, could work over the middle, run after the catch, pretty much do it all for you. And Aeneas Smith was a running back when he came to Texas A&M, 5'10", 190. And, you know, Chad Ryder and I talk occasionally, and he brought up Smith as someone that he liked. And I got a chance to watch him a few weeks ago. And, you know, I'm impressed with the route running details that he shows already at this stage of the game. He's certainly a good player after the catch. Um, you know, the, the, the techniques that he uses to catch the ball are pretty darn reliable. Um, sneaky good athleticism. I think he can play inside and outside for you, depending on what you're looking for, you know, for your team. So he's a guy that I, that I really like. I'll bring up one more that I'm, and did I, have I ever talked about um, Christopher Brooks out of Cal? No. Okay. He's 6'1", 235, running back out of Cal, who no, he probably won't get drafted, um, but he is strong, he has good hands, and his burst is underrated. And he just kind of gives me that vibe of, you know, a C, you know another guy out of Cal, C.J. Anderson. You know, someone who, who can really surprise in a camp with an all-around game. Um and wind up giving you contributor production, maybe starter production down the line. I'm I need to see more to solidify that that um overall take, but that's my first impression of him after watching a couple of games. Um, oh, wow. yeah. So there's a couple guys there. Um all right. So football writing has a lot of potential areas of coverage. We talk about a lot of this stuff. Everybody does. But, you know, there's practice and game recaps. There's talent evaluation. There's scheme X and O's, individual execution, contracts, team business. 
I mean, you see the gamut when you go on the social media and what people talk about and cover. Um, which one interests you the least when it comes to like these things? Yeah, it's the business contract side. Um, Me too. And, and, yeah, and mainly because look, I was reminded when you sent these questions over, I immediately was flashing back to when I was practicing law and my wife, who's also a lawyer, would want to sit down and watch like SVU or Law and Order or The Practice or any other sort of these like legal television dramas. And I'm like, why do I want to do something that reminds me of what I have to do the next day? Like, why do I want to watch a show that reminds me that I got to be practicing law on the next morning? And so the idea of like sitting down and writing about contracts like that's just a throwback to a, a life I used to lead and I had I used to have to wear that drove me to this moment. I got away I, came, I became a football writer to get away from doing that stuff. I don't want to start doing it again. It's why when the, and whenever there's like sort of a legal issue that that pops up in the football world and and our good buddy Doug Farrar is like, "Hey, you want to write about this?" and I'm just like, "No." No. <laughs> I don't. If you make me, I will, but I really don't want to. So it's the business contract side. Like I, I had a draft on the like St. Louis relocation litigation that I was like slowly working my way through. There was probably not a happier person on the planet when that settled last week because I was just like, don't have to write it now. I have to say, and this is no shade at Doug, because if I if I were Doug in Doug's position, I would feel like I'd have to ask you that question. But I, I, when I heard your story, your backstory, I think there was a, a subconscious part of me that said, he's no longer attorney. Don't ever fucking ask him a question <laughs> about, <laughs> about legal stuff for players, um, yeah. you know, in that, in that level of depth. Cause it's like, that's a past life that you're going to see slowly. I turn when I ask him that question. So, yeah. but I laugh because that's, yeah, I'm, I, I just get the, my eyes glaze over when I hear that stuff. And when I hear people, you know, people are always complimentary on social media, not always, but people can be complimentary on social media or they write you and they go, you could be a GM or all this stuff. And you're like, right. A, no, I can't. No. B, B, you know, I like evaluating and doing what I do. And C, even if I somebody gave me that cockamamie opportunity to do, I would have to, I would need someone to lead me in the direction of who's the, who are the best cap people that yeah. and contract people I can deal with who could also explain to a dummy like me what it is that I need to know to make the type of decisions I want to make because I'm not going to come up with that myself. Um, I would be too busy wanting to study tape and be a kid in the candy store going, well, I yeah. want this guy. I want this guy. And no, yeah. you can't. Have, I mean why not? Because... Yeah. If a team were ever dumb enough to approach me as to be the general manager, I would counter with, I will be your quarterback scout. Like I don't, I don't need the yeah. GM headache, the contractual headaches. Just let me sit in a cave and watch quarterback yeah. film. You, you don't even have to pay me. I'll you, just do it. You want me to take a stab at like systematically like managing, you know, a scouting team. I would love the opportunity to try that. Because yeah. I think that I there's some things that I would love to do, but the 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 opportunity to do that would mean that um, you would have to be willing to do things that would be um, pretty um, progressive on a level yeah. that I doubt the real world would want to try. Nope. So I know it's not happening. Um, what's a lesson you've learned or you're learning in your job this year 
or during the past couple years that you believed going to help you in some way? Um, imposter syndrome is a real thing. Um, and it's something that I, I struggle with daily and I've talked about it a little bit. I've talked about it, um, offline with some people as well. Um, you have to learn in this industry that you aren't going to be able to do it all and you won't be able to do all the work that you want to do. And I mentioned earlier about when I was practicing law, I wouldn't want to watch. I made an exception for Boston legal because William Shatner, Denny Crane is one of my favorite television characters of all time. And when I was practicing law, like nothing thrilled me more than just finishing a closing argument, starting to walk back to counsel table, turn around and just say, Denny Crane, and just leave it at that because that's what he would do. It was just such an incredible character. I just loved it. Um, but I, I, I just still, I, other than that, I wouldn't want to, you know, watch these shows because it reminded me of what I was I'm in a similar way with watching football now. Like as much as I love this game, I can't really sit down and just watch a, a live game just to watch it because it makes me feel that I should be working right now. I should be stepping away from the television and writing about this. If not writing about this, I should be live tweeting about it so I can get some followers as a result of it. I've gotten to the point where it feels like if I'm not actively working, that I'm losing ground, that I'm not keeping up. And then when you log on to social media, you see other people working. You see other people doing stuff that you could be doing. Or in some cases, doing stuff that you did three days ago, but they're getting more retweets and shares and likes or whatever as a result of it. And it can all be frustrating. It can all be overwhelming. And it can lead you to a place where you feel like you don't belong. You're not good enough. Well, that's nowhere to live. Um, and it's something that I struggle with daily. It's something that I've been struggling with a ton over the past couple of years. When I log on and see great work being done by brilliant men and women across the football spectrum, it makes you feel like you can't compete. So you need to find ways to, to live with that, to counter that. You need to find things that work for you. I have found that set it up to it because because Twitter can be very difficult to handle. I have found that sort of set it up notifications and that I'll get an alert if somebody like sends me a direct message or like directly replies to something. Good. I will have that set up. I've got an Apple watch. My phone will buzz. My wrist will buzz. Then I can look at Twitter because the idea of sitting here and just scrolling through it, it leads you down that dark road of you're not doing enough work. You're not good enough and you don't belong and you should get out. And so that's how I've managed to sort of cope with it. It's a daily thing. It's not easy. And a lot of it is just the way my mind works. But yeah, imposter syndrome, the social media, how that feeds into it, it can be tough. But as our great, brilliant, wise colleague and friend, Eric Sorner, once said, Twitter isn't real. So sometimes yep. you need to just step away from the stupid thing and go do something else. No, I think that's well said. And, uh, and I appreciate you giving that kind of insight because, you know, Mark Schofield is, you know, works at TD Wire. It's a national, um, it's a national publication, national outlet. You know, he does a, a, he's in demand doing podcasts and radio pretty much all over the country. You know, he's done great work at a at a little site that that can, you know, called the RSP. He's a football guy, staff writer. You know, he does a lot of fantastic work. And, you know, the fact that Mark even feels that way probably reflects the fact that that some of the people that he thinks are brilliant also feel the same way 
Um, yeah. But maybe don't even have either articulated it to them or haven't yet articulated and, and, it to them. And they have. And I've talked with people. And these are names that you know. Uh, I'm surely not going to share any of it. But people across this spectrum, big and small, all feel this way. And so, you know, if you're somebody that's listening to this, that's like, you know, trying to get in, you know, and is, is you know, hearing somebody like me or Matt or some of these other names, like having this and you're feeling it too, you're not alone. Yeah. You know, you are absolutely not alone. Um, but always remember that I'm here. Others have been here. Like, I'm happy to help in any way I can. Like, even if it's just to tell you and remind you, like, you're not alone. Like, I'm happy to do it because this is a hard industry. Like, it's not easy. And there are so many smart people doing this stuff. So many brilliant men and women that that have found ways to get content out there that's new, that's creative, that is great to read and, and consume that it can be overwhelming, especially if you're somebody that's young and just trying to get into this now. Like I couldn't imagine doing that right now. I probably wouldn't have lasted. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry every year that this is the last year I'm going to be doing the RSP, not because I don't want to do it only because I think no one's going to buy it. And I, and I laugh because, you know, this is a, this is an annual thing for me at certain points of the year. I'm like, is it going to work out? You know, cause I'm going to put the RSP out for presale. So I'm always like, all right, did I do enough this year? Am I going to get, am I going to be able to continue to sustain what I do? And, and especially after, and a lot of that's about the investment that you make into something, right. you know, and when you're that invested in something and you've basically said, all right, I'm on my own doing this, you know, you know, you, you're going to have that fear. It's kind of like walking out. It's, it's financially like walking out on a tightrope, even though, you, yeah. you know, you, you kind of go, all right, is I'm going to have faith that this is going to work out. And if it doesn't, well, then hopefully I can get up from this, right. <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, it's not as, you know, it feels that dramatic sometimes. I know it's not nearly as that, that much so, but it, it has that, that feeling, especially when you do work at the level that you do and the, and the effort it takes to go through it all. Um, but for me, I mean, you know, and, I, and I'll echo that, you know, when I talk about, um, when you talked about what you said, Mark, about just imposter syndrome, I think, you know, with social media, it is, it's important that you, you know, if you're, I would recommend the people on, who are getting started, don't be attention seeking, don't, you know, be attention getting. And what yeah. an attention getting is doing content that is about the work and 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 being consistently about the work. Attention getting happens over time and it's a little more organic. Certainly there's strategic things that you need to do to maximize your opportunities for exposure. But you know, if you're just trying to get clicks, then you're trying to get an audience. You, you know, then you're attracting an audience that you shouldn't attract. I told somebody recently that, yeah, you want to meet, you want to, you know, and I'm going to take this from a man's perspective, a heterosexual male's perspective. So this, you can apply this in any other, you, you know, gender format, you know, that you would like to. But, you know, as I told somebody offline, um, you know, if you're attention seeking, you end up with the audience you end up with an audience that you may not really want to have. Um, and, yeah. and I'm very, I'm deeply appreciative of the audience that we have, Mark. It's a fantastic yeah. audience. They ask great questions. They, they, 
They want to talk about the game. They share things in email that are really, you know, I wish I had the time to answer. Sometimes I'm writing and going, I apologize. You know, I'm busy with this. I wish I could answer this more uh, or I'll use it as a question, you know, and what we do because that the, the just the thoughtfulness and the, and the way that people study the game and the fact that these are a lot of my listeners and readers is just fantastic. But even so, you know, if you want to get it, you have to know the kind of audience you want to cultivate. Because if you're just trying to seek attention, you, you can wind up with an audience you don't like. I, I quit it to this. It's like, I, and I told somebody this. I said, listen, man, it's like if you thought you're going to find the love of your life at a strip club, you know, you might find a woman who has is totally grounded, who does not have any trauma, who is who who trusts you, who is good with money, and who is um, wants to be monogamous, and you know, and wants to and has the same goals and ideals as you. You might find one at a strip club. You might find a stripper who does that. Um, that that's very possible, um, but the odds are much lower, um, given the industry and given the given the life that that people lead. That's much lower that that's going to happen. You're going to wind up with a situation that you probably don't want. You know, even though the thrill of getting that attention at first might be really high for some people. Um, so. You know, it's the same thing with trying to get an audience. Where are you? Where are you? What are you doing to, to attract that audience? Yeah. And and sometimes that takes time. Uh, I, I'd say a lesson for for me is this year with the San Francisco 49ers has been a, an enlightening lesson because what I've learned, and it's something that. You know, I've had this conversation with a few people over, you know, a few people over the past couple of years. But there's a point when you start watching players where you start to see details that can be very important and can be the difference between a player, you know, becoming a starter who's a free agent and someone who's, you know, or someone who like, you know, I'll put it this way. Like we look at, a guy like like Nick Chubb, yeah. You know the fact that I've become known for liking Nick Chubb more than anyone else ahead of Saquon Barkley was because of the high level of detail that I used to examine the running back position. Now the the part of that that can be difficult is that you can start to appreciate players for the high level of details that they show, but maybe they wind up in a system where the system says we don't need you to do this high level of cooking. You just need to be a short order cook, make it good enough that it's safe and get it out fast, you know? And so when I look at a guy like Trey Sermon, Trey Sermon to me is like a culinary grad and Elijah Mitchell's like a guy that you would, who's a great short order cook. You know, the details are different. Um, The details aren't as high end. Um, but in the environment, it may work better, you know? And so when I think about fit and certain players, there's a point where you have to, you know, I'm, it probably won't change the way I grade players, 
but I but it will help me understand that players who I think have limited skills that I have to be I have to I'm I don't know how I'm gonna incorporate it, but it's come to my attention as I've watched this and I go, you know, there's a point where appreciating the different aesthetics of details that players exhibit, there can be diminishing returns with that, or it can be or it's maybe not so much diminishing returns, but it's about just does one player have one skill that's so much better or athletic trait that's so much higher that it becomes a, um, you know, it, be, it it can be more appealing to a team. You know, I mean, you look at Adrian Peterson and Dante Foreman and Dante Hilliard, that's another example I'll just give very quickly is that, you watch Peterson and you look at all the details and he's still a very good runner. But, you know, at the same point, does he have anything that's going to get him a lot more yardage than Dante Foreman or Dante Hilliard? And the the answer was no. He may get you out of more difficult situations or handle difficult situations better than those two other backs. But for the cost that he has at the veteran minimum why would you why would you pay more for someone who's going to get you 2 yards in a situation where they may lose to you know right. when the same when the when it comes to get it being well blocked they still give you the same amount of gain on a well blocked play you know well yeah peterson may be more nuanced but it's not worth the price. You know? Right. So it's it's kind of like when you're choosing between cars. You might say a, a, a Mercedes has better quality in certain areas than a Toyota, but at the end of the day, the Toyota is $30,000 cheaper, depending on use and all that kind of thing. You might just go, I'm going to get a Toyota. I don't need the Mercedes. Right. And I think that that's some of the lesson that I don't know how I'm going to incorporate that but it's something that has become more and more apparent to me with certain situations. Yeah. All right. So final question. I don't have an off the rails question this week. I know so if you have one, I'm good with doing it, but while, you know, I'll ask this one and you can tell me if you have one, if not, we'll just end it here. Um, in terms of percentage of population in the next 20 years, do you think the NFL will gain, lose or keep the size of its fan base? I don't have an off the wall question, um, but in, in thinking about this, I, I know that there's a, a thought right now that because of the way the game is being called, the officiating, things like that, that the NFL is going to lose viewers. I will just point out that the early game on Thanksgiving Day, Bears Lions between two brutal teams, averaged 26.75 million viewers, which is a jump from the year prior when everybody was home and really had nothing else to do. Nobody was really out traveling or anything like that. The game between the Raiders and the Cowboys, 38.531 estimated viewers. The most watched NFL regular season game on any network since 1990. Despite everything we gripe about, the NFL is still king. And last night when we were watching Washington, Seattle, scuffle their way to a 17-15 game, Kevin Clark, I believe it was Kevin Clark from the Rainer, tweeted out, you will miss this game in the dead of, in the dead of March. It's absolutely true. Like we will be lawning for a game that bad when March comes around. And so I look at these numbers and I think the NFL is not going anywhere. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but once you start opening up direct TV, 
and you suddenly everybody could start streaming these games instead of having to have DirecTV and a satellite dish. The NFL is just going to keep printing money. So I don't think it's going anywhere like that. Yeah, I think 20 years is a long time. Yeah. Um, 20 years. I remember I think of the 20-year span where I was playing a Coleco handheld 9-volt battery-powered game with lines. Right. You know, thinking that was the coolest thing ever. And by the time I was 20, Madden was really getting underway. Yeah. And so, and much less, you know, and we're skipping like computers, cell phones, you know, all those types of things. So 20 years is a long time. But in 20 years, unless COVID kills us all, this Gen X population, I think in 20 years, you're looking at, you know, folks like me still being 70 and cranky and, and you know, wanting to watch NFL football, yep. whether I'm writing about it or not. Um, and odds are likely that the RSP will probably be in its, you know, I don't know, that's 20 years. So, yeah, and it's, and, and it's you know, 35th year at that point. Maybe wow. it'll be that way. I don't know if I'm not blind by that point. But, uh, but you know, that might, you know, at that point, maybe as our population starts to thin out and the advent of video games and esports taking yeah. over and still being as large as it is, I could see where maybe our kids and their kids, um, you know, become less engaged in NFL. And they're like, yeah, well, I miss, I miss Matt, but you know, but I don't miss what I don't miss football. I don't feel like right. I have to watch football. Not that I'm, have my kids or family watch football with me. None of them are interested in it. So that's kind of part of why I see it. It's like everyone our age, I I see most people I know are very much into it, but I know a lot of people who are just not into it and a lot of kids who I know who don't watch. It doesn't mean that all kids that age don't because certainly plenty do. But uh, that would be my thing. 20 years, no. Maybe 30 to 40. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I that that's a bit. Yeah. So listen, this is always fun. You know, it's a little, a, a little chill of a thing. I would, I, I was going to lead off the show and joke that, Mar you know, introduce Mark is sick and me is tired. And that's probably where we are right now with some of the, with some of the workload in the NFL, but we, we love what we do, but you, we know, do. you, you have those moments. And that's, that's part of the challenge too, with what we do is that, you know, I joke with people. It's like, I always say, it's like eating a chocolate, plate of chocolate chip cookies every day. Um, there's a certain point where you're craving a salad, even if you're yep. not a big salad fan. Um, but on that note, you know, check for the RSP newsletters. I'll be out within the next 24 to 48 hours, depending on how much I can get done today. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to go grab some lunch. Um, I don't know about you, Mark. I hope you have a fantastic week. And it's always a pleasure to have you on this show. You can find him at TD Wire. He's going to be on um TSN 1050 Toronto if he hasn't already been on it, but I don't think he has. So I probably need to get few minutes. Yep. So I'm going to get off this thing so he can get on it. I can tell. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> you guys have a good week. <laughs>